Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome everyone to the Forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Today is the inaugural event in the Dr. Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn forums, and we're so pleased to have Dr. and Mrs. Cohn here in the audience, so a special welcome to you. <laughs> um, my name is Meredith Melnick, and I am the health director at the Huffington Post. Uh, I will be today's moderator. Um, this month and every February as part of American Heart Month, we turn our attention to the state of heart health in America. Um, and at today's forum, we'll train our focus more specifically on the state of heart health among women in America. I don't have to tell many of you that coronary heart disease is the number one killer of women, as it is men, uh, in the US, and it's deadlier to our nation's women than all forms of cancer. Um, what's more, symptoms of heart disease and cardiac events are often different for women um, than they are for men, meaning that warning signs can be easily missed by both patients and doctors. Um, but there is good news, which is that heart disease is preventable. Uh, and so through this panel, we hope to talk about some of the ways that we can reverse the trend, identifying some of the unique challenges that women face, and discuss discussing some of the ways we can create an environment that is conducive to better heart health. So first, I'd like to briefly introduce you to our esteemed panelists. Uh, to my right is Dr. Paula Johnson, who is the cardiologist and executive director of the Connors Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and then there, we have Dr. Joanne Manson, Chief of the Division of Preventive Medicine and co-director of the Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And then we have Dr. Frank Sachs, Professor of Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And finally, we're joined remotely uh, by Stephanie Mall, who is the Senior Government Relations Advisor for the American Heart Association. Uh, for those following along on our webcast, if you have any questions for the panelists throughout our discussion, you may email them to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu or tweet at our handle, which is at forumhsph using hashtag womencvd. Um, you can also participate in a live chat discussion on the forum site throughout the panel. To begin, uh, I'd like to introduce you to a small video clip featuring Diane Worm, an avid runner and heart attack survivor, who spoke, in re who spoke recently about her experience in a news documentary. Eating right and exercising gives women the upper hand when it comes to heart disease. But it's not a guarantee, especially since women's symptoms are not what anyone expects. 44-year-old Diane Worm is a perfect example. I wouldn't call myself a marathon runner, but um, I am training for a marathon right now, actually with a, um, a group of friends. Diane's been running since she was a teenager and has completed three marathons. These days... I run six days a week. Helps me relax, relieve stress, and keep physically fit. She was the picture of health, or so she thought. While out running one morning, Diane experienced an unusual chest pain. Not enough to make me keel over, but enough to make me stop running and go, whoa, what is that? I did initially think that it was acid, 
and it was a burning but somewhat of a pressure. It didn't get better, it only got worse and I felt a little nauseous. Diane managed to get home and her husband immediately called an ambulance. She was rushed to the emergency room where she was diagnosed with having a heart attack. She was just 42. What was going through my head was, is this it? Is this my life? This really wasn't what I had planned. <laughs> it makes me a little emotional even now, just thinking about it. Just breathe normally. At first, Diane's symptoms were misleading. She didn't have high okay, blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, blood. or diabetes. She never smoked, ate well, and worked out. They did actually say, we really don't think this is a cardiac issue because you have no risk factors. I wouldn't call her necessary standard, um, but a lot of women present like her. A lot of women have to go to emergency room twice before they are diagnosed with, uh, with heart disease. Their symptoms are just not typical. They themselves don't think that they might have heart disease, especially in Diane. Dr. Marjan Fariba is Diane's cardiologist at Kaiser Hospital in Sacramento. We look back and see the studies that have been done have been all about men, how they present with heart disease and what symptoms they have and what happens after they have heart attacks. As physicians, we are also biased and we don't look at her as someone who could have heart disease. And so it's easy not to order certain tests or not to think about it. And if you don't think about it, you don't look for it, you don't find it. Diane had two arteries that were 100% blocked. Each of those have two stents that they put in. She encourages women to advocate for themselves if they suspect a heart problem. So, Dr. Johnson, I'm going to start with you and ask a very general question. You know, I think Diane's surprise at her own condition um, is understandable to a lot of people. Um, and I think it stems from a misunderstanding of who really is at risk. And I was wondering if you could describe um, who is at risk mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, some of the specific groups that really should be, be getting screened. Yeah, well, thanks, Meredith. Sure. I think Diane really points out a very important point that we really need to be looking at heart disease across the lifespan. Um, it is true that older women, particularly after the menopause, are at particularly increased risk, but that risk starts early. And it's important for us to know the traditional risk factors, such as hypertension, smoking, um, diabetes, obesity, uh, and family history. But it's also important for us to think about those early on in life. Um, and for us to also know some of the early risk factors that are particularly important and unique to women. So for example, today we know that certain disorders of pregnancy like preeclampsia, which is protein in the urine and hypertension, high blood pressure in pregnancy, or gestational diabetes, diabetes of pregnancy, put women at increased risk and also put their eventual children at risk for heart disease. So, you know, I'm wondering uh, what are some of the early risk factors, um, aside from preeclampsia, that women yeah. can sort of know about if they're experiencing what kinds of... So, you know, the, the, the risk factors I named are critically important for us to know, and we know that the rates of obesity are increasing. We know that the rates of smoking in younger women are not going down in the way that we would hope. So all of these are really important. Um, for us to understand and our family histories, if we're able to know them, are really important. And I want to back up because there's a, there's a lot of diseases that come under heart disease. But I think today we're particularly looking at vascular disease, which is when there's um, disease or plaque in the arteries that go to the heart, 
Um, and those are the same vessels that go to the brain that cause stroke, and the same vessels that go to the lower, to your limbs that cause peripheral vascular disease. And all of these are significant issues for women. And we also know, interestingly, that the disease can look different in women. So the plaque can be laid down differently and sometimes requires different tests for women to get an accurate uh, diagnosis. The other thing that women should know is that, you know, when we say women, we're not talking about a monolithic group. Um, there are different types of women, different racial and ethnic groups, and there are different groups that are at particularly higher risk. So for mm -hmm. example, women of African descent mm -hmm. or American Indian women are at particularly higher risk, develop the disease more frequently and earlier in life. Great, and I, I want to turn to, to Dr. Manson um, to talk about some of the barriers to preventive care um, and to education and, uh, you know, what can women do in their daily lives, um, even if, you know, once they're empowered with this information that maybe they're in a high-risk group, to really um, assess and, and help prevent any potential problems? Well, I think that most importantly, women need to get information. Information is power, knowledge is power, and once you know the risk factors for heart disease and how modifiable and preventable heart disease is, there's so much that we can all do to reduce our own risks, and there's so much that we can do in the healthcare setting to advocate for ourselves in terms of getting the information that we need and the interventions, treatments that we need. So I very much agree with what Dr. Johnson said in terms of the lifespan approach. I think a counterpart of that is that it's never too late to start. You can start even in your 60s, 70s, 80s in making important lifestyle changes to lower your risk. In the Harvard Nurses Health Study, we found that following just four relatively straightforward lifestyle modifications, exercising, having regular physical activity about 30 minutes per day, and this is moderate, um, exercise like brisk walking. We often say you can walk away from heart disease, but walk briskly. Um, having a heart-healthy diet, which uh, Dr. Sachs will be talking about, maintaining a healthy weight, avoiding overweight or obesity, and not smoking. Those, those mod lifestyle factors in aggregate were associated with about an 80% reduction in the risk of heart disease, and about a 70% reduction in the risk of stroke, and 90% reduction in the risk of type 2 diabetes, which is a major risk factor for heart disease, especially in women. So just doing those lifestyle modifications can go very, very far. But once you're in the medical setting with your physician, your healthcare provider, be sure that you know your numbers, you're being screened, your blood pressure is being checked, you know what your cholesterol is, you know you're getting the right screenings for uh, diabetes. Also talk with your healthcare provider about whether you're a candidate for aspirin. Some women are, some women aren't. It's not for everyone, but it can be helpful to some. And even talk with your doctor about calculating a 10-year or lifetime cardiovascular risk score because that will help you to understand how high or low your risk is. It will be very helpful to you in terms of interventions and will also help with some of the decisions such as for use of aspirin or R-statins or other interventions. 
So you're, you're speaking about um, women who are, uh, you know, in their 60s and 70s and they're going to their doctors. You know, a lot of women want to know more about hormone replacement therapy and I was wondering if you could touch on the, the sort of interplay between that therapy and, and heart risks. There's been a lot of controversy and confusion about estrogen. We now believe that estrogen should not be started or used for the express purpose of trying to prevent heart disease, although it continues to be an appropriate treatment for women who are having moderate to severe hot flashes, night sweats, um, difficulty sleeping due to their symptoms, usually in early menopause when, when the symptoms are most significant. And younger women in early menopause tend to be the best candidates for estrogen therapy, also women who have early menopause or have uh, their ovaries removed, um, surgical menopause would tend to be uh, better candidates, often have more severe symptoms. But should not, if, if a woman does not have significant menopausal symptoms, we really do not recommend initiating hormone therapy. And um, there's just too much uh, confusion and, and controversy as to whether it can truly prevent the development of heart disease. So women should not be relying on a hormone therapy for prevention of heart disease. And, uh, and Dr. Sachs, I'm hoping that we can, can speak a little bit um, more granularly about diet and the way that diet can play a role in preventing, um, preventing uh, heart disease. And you know, I, I think so many of the preventive measures really focus on diet, but there's so much confusion. Um, there's conflicting information in the news about saturated fats, about dietary cholesterol. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of speak broadly about um, you know, some of the, the nutritional um, background for, for what are some really good quality diets for prevention? Yes, well, first of all, I just really want to reinforce what Joanne said about it's not being too late. It's never too late. And that, uh, that, what, that women in their 60s or 70s, when heart disease rates go up, <clears throat> can really make a lot of progress preventing, delaying uh, the onset of heart disease, both heart disease and stroke. By, by diet and by healthy lifestyle. And that not only, I mean, not only prevent heart disease and stroke, but, uh, but also dementia. And to preserve cognitive function, the, the lifestyle is extremely important. And there's a really hot area of research right now that we're just realizing that we don't have to go into this long decline, that, that we really can take care of ourselves and maintain a really, a, a youthful, you know, youthful thinking and youthful, well, youthful bodies, um, functional bodies. So in terms of specifics, you really, it's, it's really true. I mean, nutrition is a complicated and controversial area. And one is that people just love to eat. And people, <laughs> and people just associate eating with all kinds. I mean, they just hate, you know, hate to be told what they could eat or what they don't like to eat. <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact. So it's a tough business to be in the nutrition because you're always, you're always battling against people's sort of natural inclinations. <laughs> you know, I mean, estrogen is, that, I mean, that's a tough, tough area too, but I don't know, nutrition, it's a, anyway, in the science in nutrition is very complicated. And some of the controversies we've heard in the past year, for example, um, how bad is saturated fat? Oh, it's bad, but, uh, but it, it, the controversy comes out of really very technical, uh, arcane kind of uh, scientific methods. Uh, because w nutrition, 
the database is not like, say, the big drugs like statins. Statins, we've got an incredible database about, about how to evaluate them. In, in nutrition, we have to rely not so much on these big 10,000, 20,000 person clinical trials, uh, which is really the gold standard of our evidence base, but we also have to, have to rely on epidemiology following populations, and that's where science is complicated. Not everybody who, you know, deems that they're worthy to comment understand that very well. So basically, <laughs> you know, I mean, so that's kind of where the sodium issue is and where the saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat issue is. And the nutrition department here is very, very focused on working through methods that will allow us to understand how, how diet affects many many diseases and cogn cognition so i think you did ask me what do i really think so what do i recommend <laughs> what what's a healthy diet yeah with trepidation i will say <laughs> yeah well i mean a healthy first of all a healthy if you want to think about a healthy diet i would agree with some critics we don't want to think saturated fat, we don't want to think potassium, we don't want to think, we want to think foods and diets. So, so for example, a dietary pattern, dietary patterns have been really identified as heart healthy protective. One pattern is like the DASH diet, which is a diet that's, that's based around fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts, um, chicken, poultry, uh, lots of lots of fish, um, and uh, and very low on say added sugars, uh, and uh, pro especially processed meats, red meat, processed meats. Um, well, so that I mean that's one pattern that lowers blood pressure substantially, and you know it lowers blood pressure more in older people, both older men and women, both older women and older men. So the older you get the more sensitive you are to the, the, either the healthy or unhealthy aspects of the diet. So the bad news is, yeah, you're more susceptible to a bad diet. The good news is you're more susceptible or more benefited by, uh, by a good diet. Um, so now the, another thing I'd like to mention is sodium. Now it, there's very widespread agreement that we're eating too much sodium here. Now, the, what the disagreement is, how low should sodium go? And that's, again, very technical, difficult issue. The American Heart Association commissioned a scientific advisory on the methodological issues with trying to understand sodium and heart health, and, uh, and published that actually last year. But that's a very technical piece. But what I'd like to say is that, that sodium levels are much too high. Reducing sodium reduces blood pressure, um, in women, actually, more than in men, women are more susceptible to sodium, and in older people, more than younger people. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and actually a fantastic seg to turn to Stephanie Mall, um, who is joining us from the American Heart Association. And I think um, so much of, of nutritional recommendations come down to public education and come down to what the public understands. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, policy and public education. Um, you know, are women starting to get the message, since we're talking specifically about women, though I suppose it applies to everyone, um, and, uh, and what are the messages that are really resonating and what are you struggling to, to get across in terms of preventive measures? 
Sure. Well, good afternoon and greetings from uh, snowy Nashville and the American Heart Association's International Stroke Conference. Not as snowy here as it is in Boston, but um, we're having a little sip of these snowflakes for you. Um, so we, we, have, <laughs> uh, we have made tremendous progress, particularly in the last decade, where campaigns like the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's The Heart Truth have made a concerted effort to really educate women that heart disease is not just a man's disease um, and um, also to reduce mortality in women. And as a result of that progress, we have succeeded in reducing um, uh, the number of women who have died from heart disease by over 600,000 women in the last decade. So that's wonderful news. Um, unfortunately, however, one in three women still do die of heart disease and stroke. And we do have more work ahead of us to address those persistent, both awareness gaps and then also uh, treatment and prevention gaps. So talking specifically about awareness, um, awareness that heart disease is the number one killer of women um, has um, nearly doubled um, in the years that the American Heart Association has been tracking the statistic since 1997. However, there are still 44% of women who don't know the basic fact that heart disease is the leading killer of women. And unfortunately, the gaps are even um, higher among younger women and also women of color, particularly African-American women and Hispanic women. So for example, only 36% of black women and 34% of Hispanic women uh, are aware that heart disease is the leading killer of women. But perhaps even more importantly, even when women do understand generally that heart disease is their leading killer, the real challenge that we've had is getting women to recognize that, and really internalize that message and understand that heart disease is their own personal greatest health threat and that not only can they take action, but they really do need to take action um, to reduce their heart risk. And as Dr. Manson alluded to, um, you know, the, stud the recent studies have shown that the earlier we can get women to live those healthier lifestyles, the better off they're going to be later in life in reducing their, their long-term risk for heart disease. Um, so I actually think that's uh, that's a really good place to to actually share a public service announcement that the American Heart Association put together, um, which uh, includes some some voices of of patients who talk about this very thing um, about sort of uh, identifying and, and harnessing the power of that that information. So um, I think we'll roll the clip. One in three women have died of cardiac disease, yet 80% is preventable. If you want different results, there comes a time when you've got to do things differently. The way that I've integrated a healthy lifestyle with myself and my family is we make it into a family event. Um, when we're cooking, everybody's involved, you know, we're getting the grandchildren involved so that they can see what we're eating and where the food comes from. When I exercise, we do it as an, a family event. I used to, you know, sit in the car and maybe read a book or something and wait for them at practice. But now what I do is I try to use that time. I take my clothes with me to work and I change. And so if they're out on the track running, I'll walk the track. If they're at football practice, you know, I'll walk around the field. Um, so I'm back to a great exercise routine. I'm back to four to five days a week, an hour a day. Now I'm known as the nasty snack lady. Not because the things that I'm eating are 
disgusting, but the things that I'm eating are different from the things that most people eat on a daily basis. Stress-free is the, you know, I think is a state of mind. And your state of mind changes when this happens to you. And everything becomes very perfectly clear what the priorities are and what isn't. You can turn things around. And I'm living witness, I'm, a, I'm proof that you can turn things around. We've heard from so many women who um, have turned things around, <laughs> and uh, I'm hearing from all of you that one of the major challenges is getting through to women for whom this is not yet a problem. Um, and I'm wondering if there are any strategies in place towards um, towards really communicating that idea that this is something to identify. Um, well before it becomes uh, a crisis or even a, a medical issue of any kind. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. There's, a, you know, one tremendous opportunity that we have right now is that health care reform, the Affordable Care Act, actually mandates, it's the law that women can access at least one well woman visit uh, per year. And this is, and they, they can do this without what we call without a copay. So it's not free, but without a copay. And this is really important because we know that when you pay copays, it's a real barrier to getting preventative care. And this has been a major advancement um, in our country. And it's a real important piece of information for us to get out to women to allow them to understand that they can visit their doctor each year and discuss preventative care. And it is the perfect time to come in and talk about your risks for heart disease. So I think we need to do a better job of not just, it's, it's important to talk about heart disease as an, in an isolated way, but to ensure that as part of our general medical care, particularly with what's available today, that we arm women with the right questions to see their doctor for these well woman visits. So I'm wondering, um, there's been so much conversation about how often screenings should take place and how often um, one should visit a primary care physician. Um, in the context of, of heart health, how do you respond to people who say you don't need to go you know, every year or you don't need to go every It's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I can answer that one pretty quickly. You know, we, we have to get our blood pressure checked. We, you, don't need to, you don't need to have your lipids or your cholesterol checked every year if, they're, if they've been normal. But, um, but it's really important to understand where you sit, particularly if you have certain risks. And the only way you're gonna find that out is by really having that conversation. So you know, if your family is at higher risk for diabetes or if you've had diabetes during pregnancy, well, you know, you need to get your fasting blood sugar checked. Um, so I think, you know, there isn't a blanket answer for, for everything, but having that well woman visit each year is important. I think the, the healthcare setting is tr tremendously important, as Dr. Johnson mentioned, but also think that women and men can take so much control of their health in this regard in ensuring that they're taking the steps that are needed. The, the steps can be relatively 
mild, you know, to start out, like be, beginning with just an exercise, working yourself up to 30 minutes a day, that sort of thing, making a decision that you're going to commit to at least one lifestyle change, taking it gradually, but staying with it. It doesn't have to be really onerous. We're not talking about running marathons or doing any really strenuous um, activity. And also you can self-monitor. So many people now have pedometers, they're very inexpensive, and they can track the number of steps they're taking every day. Some people have Fitbits and they enjoy going that route. But there are a lot of digital devices that really help people stay on top of their own health and monitor their progress and sort of motivate. There are many studies showing that these uh, devices can be major motivators. And Many people will check their blood pressure on their own. They will have a home blood pressure machine because they notice they have higher blood pressure in the office and the white coat hypertension. And so they'll have a home blood pressure machine and, and check to, to be sure you know, on a regular basis that their blood pressure is staying within a reasonable range and also see how they respond to some stress stresses will really increase blood pressure and that can help them to modify their situation to try to reduce the stress, reduce the blood pressure increases. And um, also meditation and really stress uh, reduction, relaxation methods can be tremendously important. But I think understanding that it doesn't have to be major, major changes all at once, it could be a small change in diet or whatever, can be very, very um, motivating to people. But I agree, you gotta make sure you're getting what you need in the healthcare setting. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the practicalities of managing personal health. So meaning, um, you know, uh, safeguarding your, your heart health in the context of other conditions. And I'm thinking specifically of um, calcium supplements and how so many postmenopausal women um, use those to safeguard against osteoporosis. Um, and then there's been sort of some recent research uh, that suggests there might be some adverse health effects for the heart. Um, you know, how do you as health, in, in the healthcare setting, as healthcare providers, how do you manage um, prevention of other conditions with, with the heart? Well, if, if I can speak on, sure. because we've sure. extensively studied calcium yeah. and we're studying vitamin D and many of these supplements, you know, at the present time, there really isn't a simple solution like that. There's no supplement popping a pill to prevent heart disease. Um, Really, it's more along the lines of having a healthy dietary pattern, foods and healthy diet and, and the physical activity. Um, but there really isn't any evidence that a calcium supplement or a vitamin D supplement would increase risk. Um, calcium has been looked at extensively. Calcium supplements seem overall to have a neutral effect on heart disease and stroke. Um, so if you're taking calcium for bone health, you, you shouldn't be worried. Um, that it's going to be increasing your risk of heart disease. So you can also get calcium, vitamin D from diet um, <clears throat> if you want to go that route. And vitamin D is under very active study for possibly having a role in reducing risk of heart disease and cancer, cognitive decline, but the jury is still out. Those trials are in progress and just in general, don't rely on popping a pill to reduce your risk of heart disease. It does take a little more than that. <laughs> We've talked about simple steps, but unfortunately it's not quite that simple. 
Yeah, I mean, they've been, I totally agree. And it, just to emphasize about supplements, supplements just don't substitute for food. And we've, you know, we've had some, we've had, you know, a number of spectacular failures in testing supplements in large populations. They, they just didn't, they just didn't work. It didn't reduce heart disease or cancer. Um, but, you know, vitamin D has got a lot of promise and also omega-3 fatty acids yeah, like fish oil has, has a lot of promise as well. And you are testing those too, which is great. Um, one thing I'd like to say is specifically about diet is the, the low fat message. Mm -hmm. We've been fighting against that for 20 years. And the Heart Association also, when I say we, the nutrition department faculty here, have been fighting against this low fat message because low fat generally means more junk food carbohydrate. Because pe what people generally don't do in the popular, popularly is to reduce fat and then add back healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and nuts and, and uh, chicken and fish and healthy oil. Uh, they don't do that. So uh, on the Nutrition Committee of the American Heart Association, we've been working on trying to get that message across. But it's very hard to reverse an entrenched message. So, like fried foods, I mean horrors, fried foods, you know, say, oh, you can eat fried foods. Fried foods on a weight loss diet, impossible. But it's very usable. I mean, fried foods are very healthy if the oil and what you're frying is good, like fried fish. What's wrong with that? Fish is excellent, um, and then you uh, put a little breading on it put it in some hot polyunsaturated vegetable oil like corn oil, uh, canola oil, something like that, and you have a very healthful product because the un unsaturated vegetable oils are beneficial. They're, they're healthy. They're not, they're not fat or bad. They're healthful. And researchers that have compared you know, high saturated fat diets with high polyunsaturated fat diets have uniformly shown benefits. So one thing I really do want to get across is just, you know, get rid of this low-fat concept. And it's just, it's so hard, even in the food industry, to, uh, to work, you know, to purge our thinking of it. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the research environment. And um, I want to talk specifically about some of the challenges facing the research funding issues. Um, uh, inequities in gender representation in research and clinical study. Um, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing there and um, or some of the really wonderful, you know, surmounting of those challenges are you seeing? So I'll just I'll just kick it off. Um, you know, this is another area where I think there's got to be significant education. Uh, it was really only a little over 20 years ago in 1993 when the law was passed that actually mandated the inclusion of women and minorities in federally funded trials. And they only mandated it in the late phase clinical trials. And you know, we've really seen advancement since that time. Uh, women have been included, mm -hmm. but not in adequate numbers. Mm -hmm. So there are just briefly a few problems. One. Um, women are frequently not included in adequate numbers um, in all phases of clinical trials. When they are included, they are frequently the data, scientists are frequently not reporting the data by sex. So women are in the studies, but we don't really know how they did. 
And then if you think about the way that we even get to clinical studies, it's by doing what we call preclinical research. So research with animals or with cells and now stem cells. And that's a place where we are woefully inadequate in terms of including female animals and female cells. So there is opportunity across all of those domains for doing work differently, for changing policy. We've seen some movement recently. Um, and I, and you know, that isn't even beginning to get into the discussion of funding, which is also um, woefully low for research in many areas in terms of powering studies. So lots of work to do, but our population has got to know that the research um, is frequently not adequate to answer the questions we need to answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I agree completely. I think it's so important for women to advocate for more research in women's health, women's heart disease, and also sex-based differences, mm -hmm. uh, differences between men and women in terms of risk factors and in terms of heart disease and other health outcomes. And um, there, there's a, a very active advocacy group for many other outcomes, inc including breast cancer. You would expect that with heart disease being the leading cause of death, um, one woman dying each minute from heart disease, that there would be a very active advocacy group trying to ensure that there was adequate, adequate research uh, being done on ways to uh, reduce risk and, and the sex-based differences in uh, disease, in, in the disease outcome as well as the risk factors uh, for heart disease. So uh, I, I think that that is um, a major gap right now, having that advocacy and having that, that kind of research you know, at a large enough um, magnitude to really be making uh, strides. If I could expand on what Dr. Johnson and Dr. Manson said. Um, so we absolutely agree at the American Heart Association that this is an issue that needs more attention. And we've actually been working um, for the last several years um, to both, well, to increase funding for the National Institutes of Health, which is by far um, the largest investor in medical research, um, not only in the country, but in the world. Um, but also to make sure that that research is being conducted in women. And then another important aspect of this issue is also making sure that the clinical trials that are being sponsored by um, industry, by medical product sponsors, um, are also including adequate numbers of women and um, other um, subgroups, minority populations, in their clinical trials. The policy that Dr. Um, Johnson referred to that Congress enacted back in the early 1990s, it only applies to NIH-funded trials. It doesn't apply to industry-funded trials. Um, and so FDA has, through regulation, um, put in place some requirements um, to not requiring specific percentages of women and other subgroups, um, but to require that that data be reported. Um, but we think that even more still needs to be done to make sure that both not only are enough women included in those trials, but then that, that that data is actually analyzed. We're actually looking, as FDA is making approval decisions about new, new drugs, new medical devices, that they're actually looking to see whether that data has been analyzed for differences. And, you know, this isn't just a theoretical issue. I mean, there are lots of examples in the cardiovascular field where we have seen examples of new drugs and devices um, that, that work differently in, in women or in subgroups. And that doesn't mean that women shouldn't be taking those particular drugs or devices, 
But it is important that that their physicians and that the women themselves know so that they might be on the lookout for potential adverse events um, or, you know, just to to be able to make the best treatment decisions um, for themselves. Um, As Dr. Johnson alluded to, we are encouraged that there's been some some good progress in this area recently um, as a result of the work that the American Heart Association and a lot of our partners have done. Um, Congress did require FDA to develop an action plan for improving um, both the participation of women as well as racial and ethnic minorities and the elderly as well in research and to also improve the analysis of the data that comes from those subgroups. And then also importantly, making sure that information is then available to to patients and to their healthcare providers so that they can uh, use that information to inform their treatment decisions. Um, There is also legislation that was pending in Congress, and we expect it to be reintroduced um, again in this new Congress, that would require the NIH to include female cells, female tissues, female um, animals in basic research that's being funded by our National Institutes of Health. So that's another important policy that we hope to see enacted very soon. Um, So I've had a chance to ask all of my questions, and now it is your turn to ask your questions. And we're first going to go to a few online questions that were asked throughout the panel. Right. Thank you, Meredith. Um, We've had a lot of research questions coming in. I hope you all can hear me. And uh, I have a number of them that are coming in here online as well, so I'm just going to combine a few of them. This is from Nancy Nackbar. What proportion of CVD mortality in women could be prevented through use of screening, diagnostic, and treatment tools that are available today? And what are the top three must-haves, either answers to research questions or new tools treatments that, if we had them, would make the biggest difference in saving lives? So the question is about what we currently have and what we could have, ideally. I'll just start with one, with one piece of that question because it's a very big question, and it is how how what percent of heart disease could we prevent? And I don't have a specific answer, but if you take Dr. Manson's number of if we followed um, a few behavioral interventions, and that would lead to up to 80% reduction, okay, prevention of heart disease. If you add on to that discovering the disease early and um, taking care of um, the disease once we know that you might be at higher risk, I would say that the number then becomes higher, right? It would be additive to that 80%. So I think that we would probably be approaching 90% with what we know today. And if you added on to that, answering why we see certain sex differences in the impact of risk or sex differences in the way the disease looks in women, I would say, you know, it's pretty high. Because today we know, for example, that the physiology of the actual plaque (laughs) laid down can be different in women. Diabetes impacts women in a greater way. Why is that? And what can we do to negate that other than in addition to preventing diabetes. That's the opportunity of research when we think about sex differences in research. The, oh, just real quick. The, the preventability is just 
enormous. I agree, it's probably close to 90% at least. Um, and also the lifestyle modifications can prevent the risk factors from developing, the development of high blood pressure, dyslipidemias, diabetes um, can go a long way in that regard. There are studies that suggest that at least 90% of people who develop heart disease have at least one of those traditional risk factors for heart disease or they have lifestyle factors that would increase their risk, the smoking or, or a sedentary lifestyle or other. So even though there are important genetic factors for heart disease and stroke, heredity is not destiny when it comes to cardiovascular disease. There's still so much that is within our own power for reducing risk. Thank Dr. you. Dr. Cohn had a question. Hi. Dr. Lawrence Cohn, Boston. Uh, terrific panel. Really, a, really a great Valentine's present. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, I, I was very impressed with a young woman that was the marathon runner that despite all that had a heart attack. I've seen several patients of my own like that, and this may re relate to genetics. And I would like to ask the panel uh, two questions related to this. If you have a strong family history of heart disease in your family and you're doing everything right the way exactly the way you've all outlined it you run you have good diet you don't have diabetes should you have prophylactic testing with say an exercise test at some point before you say take on a marathon run uh, even though you think you're doing everything right but your genetics are such that you may not know if that is a problem and the second part of that question is do you all know any genomic testing on the horizon that may be able to identify these people who are otherwise in terrific cardiac condition but have genetic precursors, their family, their brothers, their sisters, their aunts, their uncles, have all had heart disease? Well, one, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, sir. Um, well, this came up quite a lot, Dr. Cohn, in, in my lipid clinic. I had a lip cholesterol treatment clinic at the, at the Brigham, and sometimes we, we, had, we shared a uh, work area together. But uh, uh, in any event, what I tell, tell those kinds of patients is, well, how different are, is your lifestyle compared to your family members who, you know, who got premature heart disease? Um, because, uh, because if they are really much better, if they really are, are, are fo following a lifestyle that's, that's really different, for example, they're not smoking like their you know, grandparents or parents, they're, um, they um, are, you know, are not eating a diet like in the 1950s, but they're eating a diet that we've talked, we talk about as healthful. That, that should really help prevent their, prevent their risk. But, but the fact is, there's a lot we just don't know. And hearing about that story with um, uh, Mrs. Worm about her marathon running, there are some times where I just couldn't understand why this person got heart disease. So what you're talking about, the future, of genomic testing and, and related testing will have to prove out eventually. So just to, to build on what, what Dr. Sachs said, there is no overall guideline here. And I think this is when we get more into the art of medicine. And I do think in this type of situation, you really have to take each person as they come, understand what their lifestyle has been, what the history is. But there are some of those people who are going to be at very high risk that you might, in fact, want to do 
a stress test. Not because you're going to prevent a heart attack, because we know that the physiology of heart attacks is different, but because the risk is so high that if they're going to undertake a very strenuous program, that you might want to do that. So I think it's personalized. The other thing is, for those people, and for all women, you know, I, I always take exception with this idea that these are atypical symptoms or not the typical symptoms. I think that we have to educate women as to what the range of symptoms are and really change our language so that we're not calling them atypical. They are typical for women. So it's, it's really what, what's the range of symptoms. Let's make sure people who are, are, are at high risk in particular um, and all women understand what those symptoms are. I bet if you went back, and I think her name was Diane, if you asked Diane, did she have that indigestion before with running? I bet she had some mild indigestion given that she had two blocked arteries. So I think we can do a much better job there. And then when it comes to the genomic testing and quote unquote personalized medicine, I think this is another very significant opportunity for research and looking at sex differences. What could be more personal than one sex? And understanding how men and women differ in the genetic risk is going to be important, an important part of how we develop tests and understand how we address those issues. I just want to comment that um, several studies now are suggesting that moderate intensity exercise may actually have a greater benefit than really strenuous, vigorous um, exercise in women. Um, this is not to discourage marathon running, but the, you can get a lot of bang for the buck with just brisk walking and moderate intensity exercise, and there certainly hasn't been any evidence that in a, per, a woman who's who doesn't have symptoms that she would need to have a stress test or any screening, genetic screening done before beginning a moderate intensity exercise program. But I agree with everything that uh, ha has been said about there, there certainly would be uh, situations where someone is beginning a very vigorous, strenuous exercise program where you might want to consider that. And also, I think it's so important that women become more aware of their bodies and what their symptoms might be because it's very common to dismiss those, those symptoms. It's nothing, I'm too young to have heart disease, I'm a woman, I shouldn't be getting heart disease. <clears throat> and if women really did make that personal connection with heart disease, realize this is the leading killer of women, then they would just be so much more attuned to symptoms that they're having, especially with exertion and with activities. So. If I could just jump in here, thank you for answering the genetics question, and we've had some questions on that in biomarkers, so thank you for bringing that up. But along the question of symptoms, we're also having a lot of questions. So um, here's one. Can you please review the warning signs of heart attack in women, as it sounds like women can present differently than men do? Why is it so difficult for doctors to diagnose it in women? So just getting back to the range of symptoms that you can present with the typical, um, what we learn as typical symptoms are chest pain or pressure. Um, you know, it's kind of the sign of somebody putting their, their clenching their, their fist to their chest. And um, not that women don't experience that, many women do, but women more than men will experience a set of symptoms like the, um, symptoms of gastrointestinal upset, um, shortness of breath, overwhelming fatigue. So those are things, and women are multitasking, so overwhelming fatigue maybe. I'm talking about <laughs> fatigue more than your usual fatigue, but overwhelming fatigue. Um, 
areas like that, symptoms like that, that could really, that are out of the norm. You know, if you get um, uh, uh, GERD, you know, or, or gastric esophageal reflux, but it's, it's usually resolved with a Tums or whatever you take, and this time it just doesn't go away. Well, you should be thinking, gee, maybe this isn't what I think it is. Mm -hmm. So really being armed with what that range of symptoms includes. Thank you very much, and I know we do have a lot of questions, uh, but I know we're coming towards the end of our time, so. So yes, um, well, so in order to wrap up, I, I do want to um, make sure that you each have a chance to talk about at least uh, one policy takeaway, that you really, you know, something that to your mind, if you were in charge, <laughs> would really make a huge difference in terms of reducing uh, this risk for, for women. So I'm just going to get back to the research because I think that, in my mind, that is so key. And I do think that we need policies that ensure the inclusion of adequate numbers of women in all phases of clinical trials, that we have policies that ensure the inclusion of female animals, cells, tissues um, in preclinical research, and that investigators are required to report their data by sex and by sex race groups, because remember, women are not monolithic. Um, and lastly, in that kind of arena, that we also, for federally funded studies, because I do think that, that these are our tax dollars at work, that we really create a, um, a repository where other investigators of data, where investigators can actually go in and understand for themselves and use data in a compiled way to look for answers. So I think there's just tremendous opportunity and usually federal policy leads the way in this arena. I think with all of the discussion of the importance of lifestyle modifications that we need much more research on how do you affect behavior change. If there's so much of heart disease could be prevented by having people become more physically active, having healthy diets, yet very few members of the population are doing all of these lifestyle modifications or even several of them, then something is missing. And there's so little research that goes on now, comparative effectiveness research, for example, looking at community settings, what works in the community, what works in the family. You know, there may be family-based programs that could be very effective, especially for women's heart health, to motivate behavior change. I think that type of research, having funding for that type of uh, behavioral change research and figuring out what works and what doesn't, would be tremendously valuable. Yes, I mean, I couldn't agree more. In fact, what I was thinking is implementation of the science yeah. of the nutrition <laughs> science. Yeah, how do you move it forward? We know so much, but so little of it is actually getting out to the pop population. So one thing, in the nutrition world, we talk a lot about sort of stealth health nutrition. So in other words, it's actually just, just food industry, uh, including uh, restaurants and just putting, for example, less salt in the food. Um, it's been shown that people cannot tell. If you, if, and, and they've been some, and they've been some, some companies have done that with, with traditionally salty foods like, like uh, uh, tortilla strips and, I mean, uh, tortilla chips and potato chips. The sodium levels have gone down, down, down and because companies are doing it. And, it, and so that it's not just sodium, but there are other, many other things that can be done by the food industry that, that really will help, 
will improve people's health and they really won't even be aware because you can't trans label fats. a yeah trans fats oh a perfect example ma trans fats progress in that regard major progress so essentially food companies have difficulty selling foods that are labeled like low salt or you know healthy for you <laughs> forget it <laughs> so uh, but they can make changes that people people won't be aware of and will be good for their health mm -hmm. so And if I can just chime in, uh, I absolutely agree with everything that all of our esteemed panelists said. Um, and I'm proud that the American Heart Association is doing a lot of work in all of these areas. Um, I will just say generally that at the American Heart Association, we're working with a lot of partners to try and make um, the healthy choice the easy choice. Um, so that can you know, be a lot of different public policies that we're advocating for at the federal level as well as at the state and local level. So things like as we're building new roads, let's make sure that we have bike paths um, or uh, crosswalks so people can actually walk safely um, in their neighborhoods. Um, let's have um, uh, calorie information on menu labels in, in restaurants so that people who want to eat healthy um, have the information that they need to, to make those choices. So there are a lot of different things that we can do. Much as we've already made a lot of progress in the tobacco area where now we can walk into bars and restaurants and in most states in, in the country and not have to worry about being exposed to secondhand smoke. We, we can do a lot more in the public policy arena um, and welcome all of your, your help and support for helping us accomplish that. Great. Well, I want to thank our wonderful panelists for, for educating us and, and um, doing it so, so well. And uh, thank you all for being here and thank you for tuning in and um, encourage everyone to continue the conversation on the forum website. Um, and I also just want to let you know that you can join the forum on February 26 for the next discussion, 12.30 p.m., same time, same place. Um, and the discussion will be putting mothers and babies first benefits across a lifetime. So thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.